Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of James Talks. Great to be with you all today. Um, got another really great guest with us today. Um, a guy called Kyle Strobel is with me today. He's a um, an author and a speaker, um, uh, a preacher, and assistant professor of spiritual theology and formation at Talbot School of Theology. Um, and then uh, and he lives in uh, California. Is that where you're calling from, Carl? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, it's great to have you. Welcome here. It's really great to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, it's, I'm thrilled to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, just um, tell us a bit about yourself and your story and, you know, your background. Sure, yeah. Well, I um, I grew up in the megachurches in the States, Um for those who recognize the last name, my dad is Lee Strobel. And, and so he, um, right around the time I was born, he became a Christian um, at Willow Creek. And, hmm. and so I grew up in, in, um, in the megachurches, and my whole family was saved through the ministry of Willow Creek. That's where we um, discovered um, the gospel in, the, in, in a profound sense. And um, more than most of my family, I, I, I was always... Uh, I always had pretty kind of difficult questions I wrestled with and not a small amount of anxiety about them. Hmm. And they, it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of questions that my father was answering through his kind of apologetics ministry, but they were deeper in the theological sense than the philosophical sense. And, and so I, I eventually kind of really, to be honest, more probably out of anxiety and out of kind of existential desperation went into the studying um, academically. And so I, I ended up doing a, um, my university degree in, in, um, in on the Bible. I eventually went on to do a master's in philosophy and then another in New Testament. And then I was actually in a third on um, Christian spirituality when I decided to go to the University of Aberdeen, actually, and um, study theology. And it was there that I kind of discovered and really kind of helped um, form what I'm kind of doing now, which is trying to recover a kind of a more ancient sense of what theology is and what mm. it does. And I did that through Jonathan Edwards, someone who never saw these as different discussions. You know, for him to, to do theology, he actually defined theology as the art of living unto God by Christ. Mm. And it was a lived reality. It, it wasn't something you do um, in an office. It was it, it was it was something the church is about. And so I, I've kind of longed to to dis- to rediscover the kind of lived and existential realities of theology, and, and it's it's led me to where I am now, which is in many ways random considering what I started. But um, it is what it is, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So you lived in uh, so you lived in Scotland. Yeah, um, I lived in Scotland for four years. Oh, Loved man. There. Like, I love there. Any chance to get back to Britain, I, I jump at it. So. Yeah. Aberdeen, because I've got family who are kind of near Aberdeen. Um, yeah. So it's, Scotland's awesome. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you've been around a bit. Um, definitely. Wow. Awesome. Um, so, so how did your kind of, you know, your journey, your, you know, you said you've been exploring a lot about theology and studying a lot about that how did that I mean that's a I suppose that naturally led you into kind of writing and teaching is that 
that, that, I suppose that would be true to say. Yeah, I actually, I, you know, I started writing first, actually. And, you know, in, in many ways that really helped because, yeah, as, as, as you said, you know, in, in the academy, that's what we do. <laughs> we end up doing a lot of writing. But um, my, I, I kind of discovered reasonably young that, and this is just true of my family. This is like my entire immediate family are published authors. Um, we just love mm. to write. And it's, it's just kind of in my DNA to write. Um, and so I started writing on, on a little more popular level and then got into more academic writing. And, you know, it's one of the things that has somewhat formed my understanding of what it means to be a theologian for the church is that I always am writing equally amount, if not more, for a popular audience than an academic audience. Mm. And that's that has been really important to me to do um, and not just get lost in kind of academic writing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my pastor um, lectures on theology at George Fox um, university. Um, But when he speaks to us and preaches to us, he's able to communicate it in a way that is really accessible, but yet also quite, you can tell it's at a higher level of kind of theology, but, at the same time, it's really, really, he's a very good communicator, so he's able to distill it down. Um, um, and he does a bit of writing, more more academic writing, but um, certainly he has to, there is an element of having to, and wanting to communicate it to, in a way which, you know, which you can communicate with um, <laughs> the, those of us who are not academic, and who aren't academics, I suppose, you know. Um, because that's where the application is, isn't it? I mean, that's where you, that's where you see the application. Um, so yeah, you've written quite a few books. Um, we'll just go through a couple of them and explore those what you've talked about in those books. Um, yeah. um, one of them was called Beloved Dust, which I think is an awesome title. Um, <laughs> so tell us a bit about that book and what what what, it, what it's about and the ideas that you kind of explore in there. Yeah, well, that, that was written with my closest friend in all the world, who's a pastor out here, actually, Jamin Goggin. And um, Jamin and I have been friends for a long time, and so um, we, we kind of met up one day and said, you know, we would really like to write a book that really explores the themes we thought the Lord was kind of calling us into for the last decade of our lives. And they're really, in, in, our, in our minds, kind of at the core of what, it, what Christian spirituality is about. And it starts with an embrace of who we truly are. You know, one mm. of the one of the strongest themes in the in the spiritual tradition is that knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves are are combined. They're kind of um, two sides of the same coin. Mm. That to know God entails that you know yourself, and to know yourself really entails that you know God. Um, yeah. Bernard of Clairvaux actually goes far enough to say that the highest level of love is to come to love yourself for God's sake. And so even even your self-loving is actually kind of understood through God in some real sense. And so what that entails is an embrace of our createdness and our creatureliness. And what we find in our own lives is we want to reject this, actually. Everything about us wants to reject it, and, and we live in a culture that wants to reject it. Um, you know, the... Yeah, and I and this is I, mean, I think there would be a slight difference, and it is slight, but it is a true difference between, say, American culture and British culture in this regard. Actually, um, mm-hmm. 
one of the things that I discovered when, when living in Scotland where people knew how to holiday. Um, Americans don't. <laughs> really? You know, you know, we take two weeks at most and we're working most of the time. Um, we, if we take it at all. I mean, I, I've known some people that their work has required them to leave and they haven't wanted to. You know, we, we don't rest well. We try to reject our createdness. You know, part of our createdness and I think one, a fundamental spiritual practice is sleep. Yeah. We, we were created to embrace certain rhythms. Everything that is created has rhythm to it, whether it's the universe, yes. whether it's the seasons and then our created world, whether it's you know, even, even us. And that, that rhythm of our createdness includes things like Sabbath. It includes things like, um, like mm. sleeping. It includes things like working. You know? And, and there's, there's a balance to these kinds of things that we have to embrace. And um, what we've seen is that we, we all tend to lean towards different ways to reject our createdness. And, and our, our term for that was that we are dust, but we are beloved dust. And so it's what does it mean to, to kind of embrace the reality of who I am as a creature in, in all my limitedness? And I am incredibly limited and discover who I am truly in Christ. And so when Paul says your life is hidden with Christ in God, that means mm. I, I don't primarily discover myself or um, define myself by something I find within, but it's ultimately something I find without, in, hidden in Christ. And we think there's a real freedom to not having to generate an identity, um, to not having, create, to not having to kind of create a value of myself, um, but mm. discovering it and then from within that relationship with Christ asking some deeper questions of, okay, in light of my limitedness, well, what am I called to? Um, yeah. And, and at the heart of the, the Beloved Dust book is the notion that, that you are called to, we're all called to different things, but ultimately as a Christian, you're called to be with God who's always with you. And, and that is fundamental. And, and so that's really what we're, hope, what we're trying to kind of articulate in that book. Yeah, yeah, that's... That's it, isn't it? That's the heart of it. Um, I just, yeah, knowing, it is true that to know yourself better is to know God better because the more you know about yourself, the more you know about how God made you. Yeah. And in a sense, it's God that shows you more of who you are as well. Um, mm -hmm. And you have, to, you have to make that space to allow yourself to see into yourself. Yeah. But, which means having those sacred rhythms, you know, those, um, and I love the idea of sleep as a spiritual practice because actually like a lot of what we talk about as self care is in, in a sense is like, it, you could call that spiritual discipline. You could, you could yeah. say that, you know, God, you know, which is about, I suppose about grace takes you into grace, which is, you know, you're enough. God loves you as you are not, you know, like a parent loves a baby when they're born, they haven't done anything, but they just love them. And um, and if you understand that, then you're free to explore whatever God wants for you and whoever you know, and how God made you without fear of what might happen if things go wrong or if you or if you fail or if there's a setback or whatever because you know you're enough already and um, and when you when you know you're enough you're more I suppose you're more aware of your value to God so you'll take care of yourself more in theory I mean I don't know if, this, does, this always works in practice, but in theory, that's <laughs> in theory because you can know something in your head and not feel it in your heart. Yeah. 
you know, and I, I've definitely experienced that. Um, yeah, that's that's very very true. Um, well, I think it's one of the reasons why humility is is one of the central virtues of Christianity, because humility simply is knowing who God is and knowing who I am. Yeah, that, that's all it is. Uh, we we can't create if we're not humble. We can't just try hard to be humble. <laughs> that, um, I, I think sometimes we attempt that as, as if humility is something that is kind of achieved through our effort. I mean, there's something even prideful about, ironically, about trying to achieve humility. Mm. Humility is simply recognizing who you are and who God is. And the problem is, one, as you said, we actually have to work really hard at knowing ourselves because we're so deceitful. Mm. We, are, we, we deceive ourselves profoundly. Um, we deceive others even more profoundly, but it's almost sho- more shocking of how easy it is to deceive ourselves into, into, into thinking certain kinds of things, even just about ourselves. And, and it's amazing how, how much fear and anxiety is at the very core. And, and, you know, in many ways, I think this is what, this is what the garden narrative is about in Genesis. You know, we, I think we, we sometimes get lost thinking that, you know, Moses is interested in giving us a picture of, like, I don't know, a scientific creation account or something like that. Whereas what we see in the first sin is not just, you know, a, an event or a narrative about sin. It is an archetypal sin. Mm. Every sin is the sin of the garden that at the that the problem with the garden is that we see sin enter a creation and then tarnish it in such a way that now human hearts are attuned to, to brokenness. And so Adam and Eve, in the narrative, we see they sin, and then suddenly they're filled with shame, and they're filled with guilt. And they do exactly what I do when I'm filled with guilt and shame, which is I hide and I cover myself. Mm. Um, particularly covering, which is what we see them do, is is they cover from each other because of their shame. In fact, this is exactly what children do. If you have children, my children, um, and Jamin and I talk about this in the book, he actually, um, he saw this very clearly in his children, where one child would physically run and hide if dad caught them doing something wrong. Yeah. But what was interesting is the other child would say something they thought dad wanted to hear which is just a different kind of covering. It's a more sophisticated mm. covering. It's probably more of what most of us do. Mm. Um, but then Jesus shows up in the garden, and I'm assuming it's Jesus, and he, um, it, it now suddenly fear and anxiety is generated in the heart, uh, in the garden. And suddenly now they're, they're physically hiding themselves again. And the, the notion of hiding and covering is, is, again, at the heart of what self-deception's about. It's at the heart of what religiosity is. Mm. And all of it is about how do I find ways to hide from God and to cover from others. And I think in many ways, the Pharisees in the New Testament represent the kind of highest form, negatively speaking, of what this looks like. And now it's using God, in a sense, as an idol, as an attempt to manipulate and deceive God. And the goal now of, of dealing with sin through religion is not being faithful to God. It has nothing to do with being with God. It's quite the opposite. It's now managing God 
And again, right away, we see Adam in one of my favorite sections of scripture. Adam suddenly becomes like a used car salesman. It's amazing when, when confronted by God, the way he manipulates or seeks to manipulate God through words. Um, you know, he not so subtly suggests that, well, clearly this is Eve's fault. But then secondarily, who made Eve after all? Oh, God did. So maybe actually this is God's fault. And he manages to keep himself from any blame whatsoever. And suddenly now we see the use of talking to God, even prayer, even praise, even religiosity as a way to deal with our guilt, with our shame, with our fear, and with our anxiety instead of being with God who's always with us. God now becomes the problem to manage Hmm. rather than God to be with. And that's, I think, one of the great tragedies of sin. Um, as you said, you know what, this is the person who cannot accept that they are beloved. Yeah. Because fear is just driving them so much. And it's ultimately, I think, devastating for the Christian life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, the thing, I, I always think about that, the baptism of Jesus. And I think one of the things that people don't talk about enough with the baptism of Jesus is God says, this is my beloved son. And I'm he's and I'm pleased with him, you know. And Jesus hasn't done anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean he's like he's been a carpenter or whatever for thirty years, but he hasn't like in terms of his ministry, he's done nothing. He's not preached a sermon. He's not healed anybody. He's not got any disciples. He's done nothing. Like he's still unknown, as it were, you know. Uh, and yet God says, you know, you're enough. You know, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with you. I love you. You know. You're my beloved. Um, And I think there's a message in there that isn't often talked about in that it's not about what you do. It's just that you are, you already are enough, you know, even with your imperfections, even with your sin, even with your mistakes, you know, um, God still loves you and you're still enough, you know. Um, And once you receive that, then you're able to go out and do what God wants you to do and, live the life that he wants for you. Um, and that's linked back to the garden, of course, which is where almost the complete opposite happens and people, you know, and we run away and hide because we <laughs> yeah. think God, 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 is, God is ashamed of us or God doesn't want to be around us, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Um, yeah, so that, I mean, that sounds, a, yeah, that's a pretty awesome book, you know. Um, so what's, just thinking about prayer, um, what's kind yeah. of your own relationship with prayer and what kind of daily rituals do you have which kind of deepen your relationship with God? Yeah, well, you know, it's, you know, prayer, I discovered early on that, I, I, I share a story, when I, when I was a, a, um, in university, I went to a small Christian university, I know this is kind of a little distinctively American, you know, we have all these small little Bible colleges kind of all over the place. Mm. And, um, and so it's a very unusual kind of university life. I mean, my university was only 1100 students. And so it was this kind of small, um, college experience that was wrapped up in Bible education and spirituality and all these kinds of things. And what I discovered was that as I was kind of rising up in leadership, I was, um, you know, 
by my third year, I was kind of seen as a spiritual leader on campus, and I'm leading Bible studies, and I'm doing all these kinds of things. I realized I never prayed. And I realized that I had managed um, to do the Christian life in the flesh. Mm. And I kind of realized then, although I wouldn't have put it, I wouldn't have, I don't think, had the insight to put it in these words at the time. I, I realized that I wasn't interested in prayer because I couldn't feel good about myself when I did it. And I, I was kind of predisposed to studying scripture because it was something I was good at. I, I, I could study well. I could read a passage. And, it, you know, we, I think in many ways, well, all of us feel this way. It's like you can read, like, let's say a chapter of, I don't know, John or something and kind of feel decent about yourself. Ah, I did something good today. You know, I, I, I read my Bible, you know, and you can kind of put it down. Mm. Well, none of us leave prayer that way. <laughs> no, one, no one leaves an hour time of prayer thinking I dominated that. <laughs> You know, it's just, yeah. you know, you think, I just woke up. <laughs> I feel bad about myself. Um, yeah. And so that led me um, now kind of the last, you know, 15 some odd years to, to really think through, you know, what are we called to in prayer? What is prayer? and How do we come to understand some of these things? And, and for me, one of the, one of the really helpful um, disciplines has been something the Puritans called soliloquy. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned, I, so I did my PhD on Edwards, and a lot of um, what I've tried to do on a more popular level is actually expose that, you know, the Puritans had a profound spirituality. Mm. And so I've done some writing on Edwards' view of spirituality. And, and one of the things, as I was working on that book in particular, one of the things that struck me was this, this idea of soliloquy. And in soliloquy, you're, you're, you're praying, and then you start mimicking what the psalmist did. So if you remember a variety of times through the psalms, the, mm. the psalmist is praying, and then suddenly they'll, the psalmist will say something like, Oh, my soul that is within me. Yeah. And, you know, I grew up in the church enough, to, so that, that language never shocked me. But then when I started thinking about it, I'm like, this is kind of weird. Like, he's praying to God, and then suddenly he's talking to himself. <laughs> he's, he's talking to himself as if he's another entity, like, oh, my soul. And for the Puritans, this was, this was a helpful form of prayer, and it's tied to the idea of knowledge of God and knowledge of self. So, for instance, like if, as an example now, sometimes when I'm praying, I will discover that I have stopped praying and I've, stopped, I've started, I don't know, planning out my week. And mm. there's a realization of, okay, Lord, what, you know, what is going on? So suddenly I start speaking into my soul. What, what are you longing for that you're not finding here with God? And, and I find in prayer, my soul longs for something that makes it feel um, adept at life. You know, controlling, you know, planning out your calendar is a way to control. And I, I recognize that in prayer, I feel, I feel a little bit like Adam and Eve. I feel naked and ashamed. I feel the presence of God, and I feel fear and anxiety. And I, my mind and my heart are turning to things that they want to use to cover. And in that time, I begin to speak into my soul. And it's... It, it, you know, the, the, the spiritual tradition would often talk about the idea of recollection. There, there's an idea where you're trying to recollect your soul around Christ. 
And so I'm uh, as I speak some truths into my soul, such as like, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. As I experience mm. anxiety, as I experience guilt and shame, I speak that into my soul, but I also listen because my soul will, will often kick something back. Like, yeah, I, I don't buy it. Yeah. And so now I've got to really attend to, and in many ways, collect all of these broken fragments of myself and to, to just bring them to God. Yeah. And, you know, in, in many ways, one of the, one of the profound disciplines, I think it is, is the prayer of silence. And so in beloved dust, this is where we kind of conclude. This is the last two chapters focuses on the prayer of silence. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I think silence does is it helps us realize I really, really, really want to use my words to try to manipulate God. Just like Adam in the garden, I want to start wheeling and dealing. I mm. want to use big theological terms because maybe God will like me more. Yes, I true. I want to say something or say it in the right way or, you know, whatever it is. And so in silence, my heart kind of starts vibrating because it really, it really wants to do something. But what the way we kind of try to articulate the prayer of silence is that what you're doing when you're silent with God is it's, it's the way of taking this kind of embodiedness. So you're, you're doing things with your body. You're, you're, you're silencing it as well. And it's a way as a whole person to simply say, amen. And it's, it's, I think one of the great acts of faith, because in the prayer of silence, you're putting all of your trust that, that Christ's praying for me right now and the Holy Spirit are praying for me right now and their words are enough for me. Hmm. It's not wordless, actually. It, it's a kind of amen. But in my silence, I'm trusting, you know, the Holy Spirit, we're told, groans with groanings too deep for words from the core of my being. That there the Spirit is calling out to God, saying, my God, look at this. There is brokenness here. There is pain here. There is sorrow at this place, deeper than I even have access to. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God, and so we know Christ has penetrated beyond the veil, that Christ is now kind of in our nature holding us before the Father. We're told he always lives to intercede for us. And he's holding us before before his father, calling out to us. And I've got to learn that I can trust that what they're doing is, is, is more than enough for me. And so I'm trying in many ways in, in my silence to participate in that and to just say, amen, I, everything I want to do doesn't want to trust in them. Like I want to achieve something in prayer. I want to make something happen in prayer. I want to generate something in prayer. I'm not generating anything when I pray. I'm entering in to something that's already going on in the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Now I need to just rest upon what the kind of overflow of what they're doing. And what I often experience, and one of the reasons why I think most of us don't pray all that often, is that this isn't an experience. I, and even the longing for an experience, there's a subtle idolatry there. And I discover that I don't want this, that I'm not interested in this kind of spiritual life. I'm not interested in this kind of God, in fact. And I, 
I experience a lot of myself in these places. Mm. And what I've come to realize as oh, virtually, if, if not every great spiritual writer has declared, in my maturity, I, I've begun to think that I was a much better Christian when I was first a Christian than I am now. Yeah. And Jonathan Edwards says this, in fact. I was much more excited about the Christian life back then. <laughs> and but, but all these great spiritual writers look back and they say, but I know I'm more mature now, but I see so much more of my sin. And because the Christian life is a life of dependence upon God, I shouldn't be afraid of that. And I, I actually shouldn't expect the Christian life to be kind of defeating one sin after the other. Yeah. But, but it's actually an entering into the groaning of the spirit and a longing. And it kind of, there's a desperation to it. And those expectations for me have changed quite a lot now. Interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, and I think also that sitting in silence is also a way of avoiding the numbing, you know, because we, we live in a culture which wants to numb, yeah, numb, n- not our pain, not just our pain, but also wants us to, wants to help us avoid confronting what's going on inside of us. Confronting yeah. the issues that we need to confront, confronting our past, confronting habits, confronting, inse- you know, in- insecurities, confronting, you know, and it wants to say that actually you buy our product, then that'll fill you, that'll satisfy you, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even even religion can be like that, you know. Even the church can be can be like that sometimes, and it's at its worst, you know. It's like you know, come to come to church and we'll just we'll just we'll just we'll just sing songs every week and be happy and praise God and. That'll sort everything out, you know. Um, But sitting in that silence and just waiting and just listening to what's going on inside of you and listening to God and what he's speaking to you about, that that allows you to go to undergo real transformation, I think. And I think we need to confront, I think, our assumptions about what the ideal Christian life should look like. Mm. And I think deep in our hearts, we all think the real Christian life is, I close my eyes to pray, and suddenly I'm having a vision of God, and I'm you know, mm. caught up in the transfiguration or something. And the entirety of the spiritual tradition says the exact opposite. Mm. It says, no, in fact, and I think Jesus is a great example. When Jesus confronted people, they came out, and it was often embarrassing. People couldn't kind of contain themselves around Jesus. And so if you're praying and you lust or you're angry or you're bored or you're – that's simply what your heart naturally does in the presence of God. And so it's not something, my worry is many of us when when we're praying, something happens. I don't know, we fall asleep, we – our mind wanders for 20 minutes, something happens and our immediate thought is, I'm sorry, God, I'll try harder, which is just devastating. I mean, that's one, that's just false. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what that means. I'm going to try harder. But at the end of the day, it's assuming that something bad is happening here. Again, it's the garden. It's Adam and Eve putting on clothes and hiding and fig leaves and behind bushes. And instead I say, Lord, this is my heart before you. I'm bored in your presence. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. 
And, you know, we, we, again, it's in that place where we do need to remember there's no condemnation here. Mm. Um, I love what first John in first John, when John says in the presence of God, he's talking about explicitly, he says, when your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And mm. I love the fact that John's assuming as a pastor, your heart will, will condemn you in the presence of God. And I, I think yeah. that's something we need to remember. But the, the turn isn't I'll try harder or I'm, it's not as bad as you think or it's, no, it's God is greater than this. And in that place, I have to remember, no, no, God is greater than this. The spirit is groaning in much deeper places than I even know in my heart. God isn't afraid of my sin. And that allows me to break it open and to, to really know him in my shame, in my fear, in my anxiety. That, that God is actually in those kind of purgative realities of our hearts. As, as our hearts purging these, these, these sins, these brokenness, this anger, this greed, this narcissism. That, that God's present here. And if we assume God kind of, that somehow my sin pushes God away then that's, that's going to lead to a Christian life that is desperate in the wrong kind of way, that is a desperate anxiety to try to atone for my own sin. Mm. And again, we're going to be in a very pharisaic kind of religion where now I've got to become a whitewashed tomb because God can't handle the dead bones I discover in within. And, and mm. I think that's, I think whether we know it or not, there's a lot of that that goes on in our hearts. And silence in particular awakens that and so we should expect to experience a lot of ourselves a lot of our brokenness a lot of our sinfulness but it is in in being unveiled before god that that these things are healed where we come to know that even here he is enough for me Mm. trusting him as i really am um you know, I think many of us try to send our avatars to pray for us. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. It's, it's, I, yeah. And God's going, I can't save this. <laughs> I know you and this isn't you. <laughs> this, this, is, this looks nice, but there's nothing here, you know, and it's the kind of cleaned up christian version of ourselves. And, and God's not interested in that. And unfortunately, as you said, in, in, the, in the worst kind of way, this is where the church has struggled is, is Sometimes the church is interested in the cleaned up Christian versions of ourselves. And we need to be places that, that reject um, that, that, kind of, that kind of falsity, that, that enter into lament with each other, that enter into the real broken realities of, of what's in our hearts so that we can you know, be with God who's always with us and be with him in the truth of ourselves, which is messy. You know? mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, <laughs> it's very, it's very, very true what you're saying. I, I, you know, and that that whole thing about, well, yeah, we we want to come. I think we want to come to God as almost like we come to each other often, because you know when we're talking to each other, when we're, when we're even when we're with even sometimes when we're with really close friends, um, we put on a mask and we think, well, you know, we, I've got to be a certain way. I've got to, be, I've got to perform. I've got to be an actor you know um and we can often project how we relate to each other or how i would say culture wants us to relate to each other or expects us to relate to each other onto 
onto God. You know, yeah. we want to project because you know, in our culture, it would be you do something wrong, you get punished for it. You do something wrong, you know, there's there's uh, consequences. You know, there's um, there's you know, and um, um, you know, forgiveness is is uh, conditional. You know, and and you present an image to the world. You don't say certain things to 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 people. You don't. You know, you're not always honest. You don't always. You know, there's, there's there's a whole set of behaviours that we that we have that we're trained to live to live by, and God doesn't want us to come to Him like that. He wants us to come to Him completely vulnerable, completely honest, completely naked, as it were. You know, yeah. um, and there's another reason. That's another reason why marriage is a good is often used, you know, as a yeah. metaphor for how we relate to God. Because when you're with your with your husband or wife or whatever you're completely naked you're meant to be completely naked with each other not in every possible way you know and um you know emotionally and mentally and you know personally whatever in every possible way and that's difficult um and we don't yeah. do that with many people but that's how god wants us to approach him um and that's challenging you know especially when you live when you when you've been hurt and maybe you don't trust God or you don't trust the church or you, you know, or you've had bad experiences of, of church or of God or whatever. And, and which prevent you from trusting him. And so that's a real challenge. Yeah. And I think, you know, particularly for us today, you know, I think the kind of modern technology we, we, we continually develop makes this even worse. You know, we're the culture that that gets to edit everything about ourselves before we share it with the world. Mm. And so there's this kind of second guessing always going on. I mean, Facebook's the kind of classic example of this where I get to write something out and look at it and say, huh, I wonder how people will hear that. Or I get to take this picture and say, well, it's not the best angle. I'll retake it and put up this picture instead. Or I'll, you know, yeah. and it's, it's it's very easy to start to think this is kind of what we we should be doing with God that we should be kind of presenting our, ourselves in the in the best kind of way and and it makes sense I mean I think again the heart that is tuned like all, all of ours ours to sin will always seek hiding and covering we are predisposed to hiding and covering and that is at the deepest level our hearts are formed that way and so there's there's this deep belief we all have that in the kind of lowest and deepest and darkest places of our souls that if people really knew what I was like, I cannot be loved. And that's where that needs to be transformed in the presence of God. In fact, I think that can only truly be transformed in the presence of God who knows us in the depths of all of these things and yet in the midst of that gives himself to us. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely right. Um, so, what is um, yeah? You've got a new project coming up in mm-hmm. the new year in twenty seventeen. Um, yeah. So, tell us a bit about about that and what that's about, and um, when we can expect it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes out in January, and it's called "The Way of the Dragon" or "The Way of the Lamb." And, you know, this is a hard one to write. In many ways, it's a natural follow-up to Beloved Dust. But Jamin and I were really struggling. And this, this book is, 
Beloved Dust is more about kind of where God has led us, we thought, for the last 10, 15 years. Whereas this book, The Way of the Dragon and The Way of the Lamb, is more like where we think he's leading us now. And we knew it's, it's ultimately about what does it truly mean to, that we have power and weakness as Christians. And in light of our power being found in weakness, how do we stand against the powers and the principalities of the world? You know, it's interesting that all throughout the New Testament, we get these notions of the powers and the principalities. You know, how, you know and I don't know about you in your context, but I just have never heard about these. Like, we just don't talk about these things, you know? Mm. It, it, we're told very explicitly by Paul in Ephesians, our, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the, the thrones, against the rulers, against the powers and principalities. Well, if that's our battle, we should probably be talking about it. And, mm. and we just found like we weren't. And so Jamin and I decided, you know, let's start, let's go and talk to some people that we believe have truly embodied this way for their whole lives. And so one prerequisite was they had to be old. And um, so we flew around the world in many ways. I mean, we, um, we talked to folks like Eugene Peterson, who's been a mentor of mine over the years. Um, oh, we awesome. met with James Houston, who um, was mentored by C.S. Lewis. Oh. We, oh. we went to Paris to talk to Jean Vanier, who was Henry Nouwen's mentor, who started the La Arch Communities and has done more for people with disability than any human alive. Um, and we, we sat down with them, and we, eventually we did seven of these interviews, and we, we wrestled through what, what does it mean to, to, to have the, the power of the lamb and reject the power of the dragon. The imagery, of course, comes from the book of Revelation, but it's actually from a Eugene Peterson quote. Eugene Peterson, in his wonderful book on the book of Revelation called Reverse Thunder, has this wonderful quote about comparing the way of the dragon versus the way of the lamb. And as, as we wrote the book, one of the th we, we discovered something we kind of weren't fully prepared for. And we've come basically through the journey we took in this book, meeting with these people, we've come to realize that the greatest temptation for the church today in our minds is to try to utilize the way of the dragon to further the way of the lamb. Hmm. Um, that the church is trying to use worldly power to, to advance the kingdom. And it's, it's destroying us. And oh, that's so true. We're calling, the book is, is a call to rediscover the way of Jesus. And not oh. just the ends of Jesus, but the means of Jesus. To quote Dallas Willard, who, who's one of the people we interviewed, we, we can't simply do Jesus things, we have to do them in Jesus' ways. Yeah, oh, I love that quote. And that means we, we have to come to realize, as Paul had to come to realize, that our power is found in weakness. And so the, the book is an exploration of those realities. And it was, you know, this is, it was humbling to write. Um, I, I, I'm an academic, and the entirety of the academy is built on worldly power. Yeah. And it's... Um, even much of, in the States, I think even more so than in your context, um, ministry in, in the States right now in evangelicalism is built on worldly power structures. And our call is to stand against these, is to expose them. Um, 
you look at some of, again, in the States, what we've been in the last two or three years, the, the racial issues. You know, this is not simply a, a, a problem we have. These are, the, these are systemic evils. This is pow- the powers. Mm. That and we have to expose the powers. And the church, the church needs to be the, the countercultural community that lives by the way of Jesus, that, that exposes this, this kind of power structure. And so it's, it's funny, actually, one as a part of a side project. So probably around November, December time, we're going to have pre-orders. And, and oftentimes we try to like to give away free things if people, you know, kind of buy in early, so to speak. And so one of our giveaways this time is going to be an ebook I wrote called um, Harry Potter and the Christian Way of Power. Ooh, that and sounds I'm, interesting. I'm convinced that this is exactly what Harry Potter's about. That, that Harry Potter ultimately is about how the Christian way of power stands against the worldly way of power. And, and ultimately, um, the way of, of Christian power is power in weakness for love, which is the way of Dumbledore as understood through Harry, whereas the way of worldly power is power and strength for control, which is first the way of Grindelwald and then the way of Voldemort. And we see, and in particular what Rowling does, which I think is profound, is that she shows that both of these power systems leads one to stand before death in a certain kind of way. She's so good. I can't... The way of Voldemort. Remember, Voldemort's followers are called the Death Eaters. I have have to confess, I haven't actually um, read... Harry Potter, and I've only seen, oh, a, I've only, I've only seen a couple of the movies, and I, and you're oh. make, you're, you're, you're literally making me want to go and, you know, watch them Please all now. Please do, they're delightful. Um, yeah. And and I actually heard that um, J.K. Rowling. I don't know, I can't confirm this hundred percent, but I remember a, somebody quoting her saying that actually a lot of this came from, a lot of these stories came out of her own Christian faith, or. Certainly, yeah, well, but Anglican Christian, as far as I know. Yeah, exactly. So, like, not like like basically, the Chronicles of Narnia, in a That's sense, right. with C.S. Lewis. That's exactly how I read it. Yeah. Um, yeah. and I didn't it, know that. You know, I, I didn't know that, and when I heard that, I thought, oh, right. You know, it makes me it gets me interested in them again. Yeah. It is profound. You know, and it, on Harry, Harry's parents, who of course, you know, you don't they die before, like um, when he's a year old. On their tombstone is a is a verse actually a Bible verse that the last enemy to be defeated is death, and in a nutshell, that is what Harry Potter's about. Hmm. It's about the enemy of death that we all face as human beings, and we all have to put our faith in a way. I mean, the Bible talks about the two ways. Um, James talks about the way from above, the way from below. You have the way of wisdom versus the way of folly. One of the earliest Christian books outside the Bible, the Didache, which was written about 150 CE, um, starts by saying there's two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And what Rowling's doing is she's narrating these two ways and showing how they confront the enemy to be defeated, which is death. And for Christians, that's the cross. And that means we confront death in a very unique way to the world. Um, And Voldemort represents the alternative way of the world, which ultimately is enslaved to death. And in many ways, what I see in our book, what we discovered in scripture is that this is exactly right. That, that what we've done in ministry is we've, we've become enslaved to a way that is death. It's, it's worldly power. And we're trying, we have good ends. We have good purpose. You know, we want to do good things. 
and we want to further the gospel, we want to further the kingdom, but the way we're doing it is antithetical to the gospel itself, and it's slowly killing us. And so we're doing ministry by reaping to the flesh, and as scripture reminds us, and when we reap to the flesh, we will sow to the flesh. Or sorry, other way around. Um, <laughs> and so it's, it, you know, it's a reality I think we need to, to be confronted with. And so um, this book really does wrestle with some difficult um, difficult topics. But, and I think particularly today, you know, just, Jamin and I started writing this book years ago. It's probably been six, seven years. And since that time, the amount of well-known Christians who are pastors who had to leave the ministry either because of sexual sin or what we're seeing more and more in the States is because of celebrity and grandiosity is, is, is causing them to have to leave the ministry. Like this is, this is, this is the way of evil. This is not just mistakes people are making. This is systemic evil. You know, James, when he names the way of the, from below says, this is the way of the world, the flesh and the devil. And he names two characteristics, jealousy and selfish ambition. And as one of our interviewees reminded us, if you want to see jealousy and selfish ambition, just go to a pastor's conference. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, my pastor talks about this a lot. And yeah, he's, uh, he's always saying, you know, he's quite honest about his own insecurities and like says, you know, um, you know, I'm... I'm always, when I go to these pastors' conferences, I'm comparing. Uh, there's something. There's something in me which is comparing their church with my church and the size of oh. their church with my church, you know. Oh. And it's and he knows how unhealthy it is, and he's trying to. He tries to obviously he's always wrestling with it and trying to overcome it, and you know. But event, but ultimately, there's, there's something inside of us which wants to. There's there's that ego, isn't there? Um, yeah. And this is. You know, where James says, where these things exist, so do all evil things. Mm. We need, again, this is, again, the turn to um, self-knowledge, like recognizing that and, and coming now in prayer. Lord, I am the one who wants to be better than the rest of these people. I am your disciple arguing who is the greatest. And that's, that's, that's where we need to start. We need to start admitting and walking into these realities. And unfortunately now it's, I think it's just become so a part of ministry culture um, that it, it's just, it's hard to get away from. And it's, I think because it's become so normalized, it's treated as, well, yeah, this shouldn't happen, but, you know, we're all broken. You know, I mean, it's, it's treated as kind of a minor issue. And what we want to say is, you know, Scripture talks about this in very different categories. And if we're going to walk in weakness, not defeating our weakness, but embracing our weakness so that we know the power of God, as Paul tells us in um, 2 Corinthians 12, then we need to learn a different way. Mm, yeah. I mean, there's, I think there's another reason that people are leaving, well, that well-known pastors have been leaving their church, and I think it's because some of them have been discovering this Jesus path. Mm. And their churches are still stuck on the kind of let's do Jesus the uh, the way that cultures do, you know the way yeah. of the way of culture. But the pastor's like, well, this is actually the Jesus way of doing Jesus things, but the church doesn't like it, and so they've had they've kind of felt they've had to leave because to pursue yeah. to pursue the way of Jesus. You know, I think there's all sorts yeah. of things, all sorts of reasons. 
why that's happening. And yeah, I completely get that's a really sounds a really interesting book. Um, uh, what's it called? So it's called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, Searching for Jesus' Path of Power in a Church that Has Abandoned It. Uh, awesome. That sounds really awesome. We'll definitely have to have you back when that comes out and talk about it more. Because, uh, I would love to. I, would I love think to. there's um, loads and loads of stuff there. Um, yeah. So just a couple of quick, quicker questions yeah. to finish. Um, what's the best bit of wisdom you ever received? Something that has stuck with me that my spiritual mentor once said, and this correlates with what we've been talking about, um, prayer is not a place to be good. Prayer is a place to be honest. That's good. That's really good. That has, that kind of reverberates around my soul quite a lot, (laughs) especially when I'm trying to be good in prayer. Awesome. And um, what does grace what does grace mean to you? I mean, how do you, what, what does it mean? Yeah. What does grace mean to you? Grace is God's self giving that God freely. I think as you, as an evangelical, I think we've done well on the free part, but I think we forget to talk about what is given. Oftentimes I hear people talking about grace as gift, which is true, but the question is, well, what is the gift? And we never kind of get around to saying what the gift is. And the free gift is God's life. It's himself. Um, that in Christ Jesus, he has given himself to us freely so that we can partake in his life. And um, ultimately, I think all of grace is is oriented around that, self-giving. Mm. I love that. That's beautiful. Um, and just one final thing. Um what word of hope or encouragement would you say would you want to offer to anyone who's struggling uh, right now you know in their life in their faith someone who's in need of hope what would you what one thing would you want to say to them well it's it's what we're told in first john that god is greater god is greater than your heart there's no condemnation here and god himself is great mm. beautiful Awesome. This has been so, so good, Carl. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think, um, yeah, well, just amazing stuff. Um, and there's so much more I think we could talk about as well. Um, um, so thank you for, for coming on today. Well, thank you so much, James. It was great to be with you. Um, yeah. So, uh, and yeah, we'll have you back when your book comes out as well. I look forward to oh, that. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, awesome. Um, all right. Okay. Well, that's that's it for this week, everybody. Um, take care, and uh, we will talk soon.